Well, happy Thanksgiving. We are, we are uh, in the Sunday or on the Sunday leading up to Thanksgiving. And we are thankful for many things. We are thankful for the church. We are thankful to God. We are thankful for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But when it comes to our personal experience as human beings, we're ultimately grateful for being born again. Speaking of our religious experience, in 1844, Archibald Alexander wrote, There is no more important event which occurs in our world than the new birth of an immortal soul. We just don't talk like that anymore, right? Unless we're on a movie set. Immortal soul. Alexander was writing in 1844 in reference to spiritual regeneration, which he referred to as new birth, and eternal life. That's the language we use. But when we consider eternal life and what it is, is not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life, we are talking about the immortality of our inner being. The soul is the control center of who we are. The soul is the center of our thoughts, our feelings, our being. And the soul is intricately, intricately connected to our physical being as well. Today we are continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And last week we saw how a Pharisee named Nicodemus was having the most important conversation of his life. His conversation partner, as if you'll remember, was Jesus. And so in the first 13 verses of John chapter 3, Jesus made a simple point. That point was to enter God's kingdom, you must be born again. And of course, we understand that Jesus is not talking about physical birth. He's talking about spiritually being born again unto God's kingdom. And so to, to today, Jesus continues his discourse by turning to the subject of from regeneration to salvation. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So last week was about regeneration, being born again. But today, we are going to look at salvation. And very simply, we are going to look quickly at the pattern, the plan, and the pronouncement. We're going to spend the most time on the pronouncement, or that would include the condemnation of those who aren't born again. So pattern, we will go quickly. Plan, we will go quickly. But I want to spend the most time on pronouncement because we're all familiar with John 3.16. Yes, we're going to unpack it. But I think it's verses 17 to 21 where we need to spend more time understanding how to apply this especially if you are already a believer in Jesus Christ. If you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 14. John chapter 3 verse 14, where we'll see point number one, which is the pattern of salvation. The pattern of salvation. John 3 verses 14 to 15, it says this. And as Moses lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus, when he refers to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus understood this reference, and the Jews of the New Testament would understand this reference. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. You don't have to turn there, but you can take note of it. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, 
What happens in Numbers 21 is this interesting fiery story where the people of Israel, they've been traveling in the deserts under the leadership of Moses. And as usual, so the pattern of the Israelites is they begin to complain. They complain against God. And the way that they complain against God is they take it out on the mediator between God, God and uh, his people. They take it out on God's chosen servant, Moses. They spoke out against God. And so in response, in punishment, yes, in judgment, God sent these fiery serpents that bit the people, causing many of the Israelites to die. It was a type of judgment. And so the people, this is their pattern, they realize, oh no, we're dying. This is a consequence of our sins. So their pattern is they go to their mediator. And they say, Moses, pray to God on our behalf so that God would have mercy on us and show compassion. Moses does that. And interestingly, the Lord tells Moses, make a fiery serpent, meaning carve one out, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made this bronze serpent, and sure enough, whoever looked upon the serpent was healed and lived. And so this healing was a type of salvation. It was physical, it was not spiritual. And so what is very clear is that it wasn't the image of the gold serpent that brought the Israelites physical healing. It was the fact that they actually believed the ridiculous words of Moses, the Word of God. If you'll actually believe what is hard to believe, that if you actually look at this bronze serpent, that you'll be healed, then you'll be healed. So the Israelites had to trust in the Word of God as difficult as it would be. There was an object to their belief. Now you see the connection. Go back to verses 14 and 15. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, as ridiculous as it sounds to you in your finite thinking, and as ridiculous as it will sound to the Jews who are expecting a certain type of military messiah, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must be crucified. What? Our Messiah crucified? I know, it's hard to believe. That's why it's hard to be born again. But the only way to be born again is if you believe in the Word of God, communicated now through our new and better mediator, not Moses, the mediator of the law, but the new mediator, Jesus Christ. In verse 15, that whoever believes in him, as hard as it is to believe, Whoever believes in him, now you understand, whoever believes, anyone who will actually believe this ridiculous message and find it as good news in him that that person may have an immortal soul. Not just physically heal, physical healing from fiery serpents, but actually eternal life. So Jesus refers to Numbers 21 for two reasons. To show Nicodemus that to be born again, he must believe in the words of Jesus which is not easy for a Jew to believe. And number two, Jesus reveals that the story of the serpent was a shadow. It was meant to reveal a pattern, a pattern that would point towards a new and better lifting up, crucifixion, a pattern of salvation. Here's the pattern that Christ fulfills. Man has fallen into sin, just like the Israelites. They rebelled against God. God's judgment is coming, not in the form of fiery serpents, 
but in terms of eternal judgment. But God shows compassion. Only it's not a bronze serpent. God sends his only begotten son that whoever believes in him who is lifted up and looks to him will have eternal life. Now, the Greek word lifted up deserves some attention. This is a play on words. The Greek word for lifted up has double meaning in John's usage. It refers to both crucifixion and exaltation. And here's why Jesus uses this word and gives double meaning to it, puts a play on it, is because the Jews, like I mentioned, they wanted to believe, and they would believe, in a Messiah that was exalted, the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied, the the exalted Messiah that Ezekiel spoke of. And so we know that Jesus Christ is exalted. He resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven. But it would be very hard for a first century Jew to receive a crucified Messiah. And Jesus is actually using the illustration in Numbers to say, I will be crucified. It explicitly refers to Jesus' form of exaltation, which is crucifixion. Without crucifixion, there is no resurrection. Without death, there is no being born again in the sense of rising from the dead. So the Jews believed that Messiah would be exalted in glory, but Jesus describes his crucifixion as a better exaltation because it would lead to resurrection once again, hard to believe, and that's why it is repeated, whoever believes. Whoever is actually willing to believe this. Whoever is born again and able to believe this. John 8, 28, which I have put up on the screen for you behind me, is that John 8, 28, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, which means when you crucify the Son of Man and put him on a cross, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Meaning, when you crucify me, you'll realize that I will be resurrected soon afterwards. Then later in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, and I, when I am, same Greek word, lifted up from the earth, so exalted, will draw all people to myself. But in the very next verse, verse 33, which I highlighted for you on the screen, it says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So just as I mentioned, it would be hard for the Jews to believe in a crucified Messiah. Crucifixion is not, type of the, not the type of exaltation they were expecting. I think it's hard for us today to believe in a crucified Messiah as well in our world. A, a, a Savior who died, a God who came to die, a God that we can't see, a God who is exalted in heaven, So in our lives, we also need to be born again to have spiritual eyes to see. And so that's the pattern of salvation. This leads us now to point number two, which we're going to look at now the most famous verse, arguably, I think, the most famous verse in the Bible, which is John 3.16, and that leads to the plan of salvation. In John 3.16, we see the pattern of salvation connected to Numbers 21 played out in the person of Jesus Christ, and we see the plan of salvation. Some of you have memorized this. If you've ever been to a football game, you see the signs, John 3.16, right? Or, or Steve Austin says, Austin 3.16. They even perverted and put a play on words. But uh, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or his only son, the ESV, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's so much here we can unpack. What I'm going to do is I'm going to punt. Okay, I realize when we have a lot of text against us and where there's too much field to cover, we're not going to get the touchdown today. We're going to punt till next week. And here's why the text allows us to punt. Check it out. Remember when I mentioned that John is repetitive? Yes, if you watch football, you learn how to interpret the Bible. Okay? But we have to understand that John's repeating the same themes. Sometimes he's going to say the same thing over and over again to drive it home. So notice in verse 15 that whoever believes may have eternal life. Then verse 16, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Then next week, it's now John the Apostle giving his take on Jesus' words and sharing his testimony. And John the Apostle, after having explained John the Baptist a little bit, he says the same thing, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then in chapter 4, the gospel goes from the conversation with the Jews, a new birth, to a new type of worship where Jesus begins to save who? The Samaritans. The half-Jews that, pe- that, that, that the Jewish people hated. And so you begin to see the gospel where it says whoever believes, not just Jewish people. The gospel's for whoever, all types of people, Jew or Gentile. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Jesus is not just the Savior of Israel. He comes out of Israel. He is the Messiah to the world. And so that's the whoever, whoever in the world, for God so loves the world, that whoever in the world. So you kind of see what John's doing. You just got to follow. He repeats himself on purpose to set you up for the next part. John is, is not doing a documentary. I heard one commentator or pastor explain that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're like script writers writing a documentary, interviewing this person, interviewing this person. Then this disciple said this. Then this event happened. John is, is more like uh, directing a movie, a drama. He's cinematic in that sense, right? And so he goes from scene to scene to scene, showing you all the signs and miracles. And he wraps everything around these signs and miracles, showing you that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here he talks about the plan of God. So next week, we will spend time talking about whoever the world believes, what it means to believe. Today, I want to spend our time talking about eternal life, eternal life, a little bit, okay? Now, um, eternal life, if you go to our website, uh, our social media team took one of the sermons I, I preached and they blogged, uh, I don't write blogs, they, they just took it and blogged it um, for, for me and for us. Uh, I, I described in more detail, tying back to the creation how eternal life is not just a quality of life, I mean, not just a quantity of life, meaning you live for a quantity of foreverness, uh, but it's a quality of life. And uh, you can read about it more there. I simply want you to consider this application, right? When, when you look at the text and it tells you, when it tells you that you have eternal life and when it repeats it, it's talking about this sense of quality. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you live with a quality of eternal life in your heart? Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is not meant to be easy. 
Jesus says his yoke is easy. That means a lot of things. Yoke, it means him, his gospel. But at the end of the day, the yoke is the instrument for farming that you put over the donkeys so that they can, they can do their work on the field. And Jesus is not saying, I'm going to give you escape. Do you understand that? Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to guarantee that I'm going to take away your disease. You might be healed. Jesus doesn't guarantee that I'm, he's definitely not taking away death. Okay, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to take stress away from your life. He doesn't say he's going to take difficulty from your life. He doesn't offer you escape. Eternal life is not some escape. He offers you equipment for farming. He, he's saying life is hard work because of the fall. You need to do farming. But my yoke is easy. I'm giving you equipment, including the gospel, including prayer and the community of God. I'm giving you equipment, as some pastors explain, to live this difficult life. And this equipment is life. What does that mean? He gives you a new heart. He gives you inner peace when the world is filled with turmoil. He says life is stressful, but you can survive in that desert. You can survive when you, when you have this quality of e eternal life, which in our life, it's a battle for inner peace. Follow me on this, and we'll, when we get to point number three, you'll see it unpack a little more. That our inner shalom, this inner peace, there's always a daily battle going after our peace. And this is a question I need to consider every day. Is my heart growing in peace and joy, or is my heart growing in anxiety, stress, unrest, you name it. Meaning, the world is going to cause anxiety. Is that anxiety and stress going to lord over you? Or are you going to experience victory on the everyday level? Because life's going to come with struggles. Are you going to take Jesus' equipment, lean into him because his yoke is easy, and draw from the gospel and the Holy Spirit's power? And so how do we respond to life's problems? Is it with stress and anxiety? Does our inner life reflect a soul that is eternal or a, here's where it's convicting, or a soul that's perishing? Because when I, when I hear about stress, turmoil, strife, when I face it myself, when I give in to stress, anxiety, anger, a lack of peace, over-information, when we give in to this, it seems more like the soul in the moment. It's a quality of a perishing soul. So if I put it in, in these terms, what's the quality of your inner life? Is it a perishing soul that you're carrying around? Or is it a eternal life type of quality? And if you really are born again, if I'm really born again, then we should be experiencing victory. Now, the problem is, though, the reason why it's so hard to have that inner peace is because we live in the world. We are in the world. Now, what does the world mean? For God so loved the world. Let me read you verses Verses 16 and 17, one more time, okay? If you look in your Bibles, for God so loved the world, he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then in verse 17, for God did not send his son into, same language, the world, the Greek is cosmos, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this word world is repeated over and over again in just two verses. What does Jesus mean uh, by the world? Thanks. You guys got me up there. Um, what does Jesus mean by the world? Here's where it's confusing. 
This same author, John, in other parts, like 1 John especially, but in John, he tells us that we got to hate the world, right? He says that Jesus hates the world in the sense where, where uh, you, you hear James, and here's a different author, en- like love for the world is, is enmity with God. That we are, we are told not to love the world. And, and so what is it, Jesus? Do we love the world? We're supposed to be in the world but not of the world. So what is it? Are we supposed to love the world or are we supposed to hate the world? What is it? Because you keep saying you love the world, yet we are told over and over again that we are not to love the world. And if you do a little bit of a Bible research, it's pretty simple, is that the New Testament uses cosmos in three ways. First, there's the world as God's creation and created order. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so Paul is using cosmos to refer to the mountains, the ocean, and the created order. So that's the world, just nature, just the physical creation. Then there's a second usage, which is, the, which is how the New Testament authors use the word cosmos the most. It's a negative sense. It's talking about the fallen world, right? And most famously is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. I will read this to you. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. But wait, Jesus, you said to, you love the world. No, 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 different sense, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so this is the world in a negative sense. And I will later I will show you in the application that when we say we love the world, in a secular sense, when we say we love the world, we're actually being tempted to love the fallen world system. Okay, that's not the world that God loves. He doesn't love a world that has fallen in that sense. He doesn't love the fallen world system where Satan is reigning over that world. Now, John 3.16 uses world in this third sense. It's simply talking about the people of the world. God loves the mass population of people in the world. And so that's what we see. As fallen creatures, God still loves us. We are his creatures made in his image, and he loves us. And so when, 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 when John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, he loves each and every one of us regardless of our age, race, or culture, regardless if we're Jews or Gentiles, he loves all types of people in the world, every nation. That's what he means. Now, if you go back to just verse 16, I'm going to just use this slide. And when you consider that God so loved, and and what's the object of his love? The world that he gave his only son. Let me just unpack that language really quickly. Why doesn't God the Father come himself? He could. If I told you I love you, and you looked at um, my life, and I said I love you, um, that love is in me. I can communicate it to you through words. I can even show you. But you'll know if I'm actually a loving person, hopefully 18 years from now, if you look at my kids. Same way, you know if a pastor is loving if you eventually look at his flock after 20 years. So 
the best way that God can communicate his love is not to come himself because love is an attribute that's in him. He can tell you. He can come down to earth and tell you, I love you. But if you really want to see the father's love, then you look at his son, his only son. We know that this language of the Trinity, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we know that the Father, John 1, and the Son are equal, and the Holy Spirit is equal. The, the three members of the Trinity are equal in essence, equal in value, equal in ranking, but they are distinct in their person, and there's a reason why one of the members of the God has described as Son, because the perfect reception of a father's love would be in his child. And so even though Jesus is equal to God the Father in value and ranking. He is the perfect recipient of a father's love. And he's the only son. You see, if you're a parent and you have multiple children, rightly so, your love is distributed. But God is trying to convey to you that I only have one son. And so 110% of the father's fatherly love is poured out on his son. So, so God the Father is essentially saying, if you want to see the perfect, most robust expression of my love, I want you to take a look at my son. And now the gospel makes sense. You want to come to me, look at my son. You want to see my love, you got to see my son. If you want to see how much I love you, you look at my son. Because I have spent eternity giving him perfect fatherly love and he has spent eternity returning perfect submission and obedience now you can imagine i love that son so much i'm going to send him to die for you that's how much i love him i'm sending my only son so that's why god doesn't send the holy spirit god doesn't send a to die you know he does send the holy spirit but not to die for us god doesn't send himself God sends his only son, the perfect embodiment of his love revealed to us. So that's why John 1 begins to make sense. Without John 3, it's hard. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. John 1, 14, the word became flesh. It's one thing for God to tell you in word, I love you. It's a whole different thing when, he, when the word, I love you, becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Did you guys ever read John 3.16 that way? That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he had to send his only begotten son, the one who is the perfect recipient of his son, I mean, of his love for us, that whoever believes in him, what about him, that he's lifted up, connection with the previous verses, that in his crucified and exalted gospel and in him should not perish, but you will have a quality of inner life now that extends forever. You'll have shalom. Now, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world in order that the world might be, but in order that the world, people in the world, might be saved through him. But then in verse 18, verses 18 and 21, we see this pronouncement of salvation and then also the converse is condemnation where many are already condemned. What does that mean? So this leads us to point number three. So, uh, oh, thank you. We'll leave that there. Point number three is pronouncement of salvation. Okay, so point number one is pattern of salvation. Point number two was plan of salvation. Point number three is pronouncement of salvation. 
Now, a pronouncement is the judge pronouncing salvation or judgment. And I want you to notice on, on the screen above and in your Bibles, verse 18, it says, whoever believes is not condemned, meaning you won't be judged in eternity. But whoever does not believe, notice the language is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I love the New American Standard uh, 1995 translation. It says, whoever, um, it, it translates condemned already as has been judged already, meaning whoever does not believe is judged already. The reason I like that is because every single human being eventually at some point in your life has to make a judgment about Jesus Christ. And when you make that judgment that I reject Jesus Christ, he's not God, you're actually confirming your own judgment. So when you make a judgment about Jesus Christ, it's actually making an own judgment. And that's what this verse means. It says, whoever chooses not to believe is condemned already. It takes you into this throne room or this courtroom idea where it's talking about position. That those who don't believe in Jesus Christ, that, if you're a Christian, that included every single one of us before we got saved that we were already condemned, that you're born fallen, you're born in this position where you're already judged, you're already condemned, because we have not believed in the only Son of God. But whoever believes, because why? Because we're born again. You're born of Adam into judgment, you're born again through Christ into eternal life. So verse 17 and 18, uh, that's what it means. And but I want to spend the most of our, our time, and I guess the, the next 20 minutes or so, talking about verses 19 and 21, talking about application of why people reject Christ. I want to talk about spiritual darkness and how as Christians, we're kind of, we have light, but, but we are bombarded by darkness. We, we're born into darkness. We have to be born again into light. And even though we're born again, we're still in this world of darkness. We're still in this world of darkness. And when I say that, I'm talking about the other use of cosmos, which is we're in this fallen world. People hate the consequences of sin, but people don't hate sin, including us, right? We don't like the consequences of sin, but our flesh loves sin. That's our temptation, and there's a reason for that, and that's what I want to spend some time unpacking. I want you to see this, okay? Next, is that people reject Christ because they love darkness, now, this is not Hanley telling you this or our pastors telling you this. This is Jesus. Look at, the, look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 19 to 20. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Stop there for a second. So there's a future judgment. But there's also a judgment now where people are living Apart from Christ, they're living in this judgment, that there's a judgment, there's a, there's a consequence to sin right now, that people love darkness. Also, the result of rejecting God is loving darkness and being consumed by darkness, which leads to ruin. Now, go back to the text, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so that's really clear, is that we love the darkness, we love what we do, we love our sin, by nature, and light exposes our sin. It shines a, a light. So Jesus is like a light, 
And Jesus exposes the Word of God and Christ exposes our deepest thoughts, our inner thoughts, our secret thoughts, and we don't like that. We love our privacy, right? And so when we're alone, we can think what we want. And when we think no Christian is watching, we can do what we want. And so in those moments of darkness, we hate it. We, we don't want to be exposed. We don't want people to think what we're thinking, our prideful thoughts, our angry thoughts, our hateful thoughts, our lustful thoughts. And that's why we love to hide. And that's part of human nature. And so once again, Jesus uses this contrast of light versus darkness as a metaphor. There's a realm of spiritual darkness that we naturally live in. Jesus wants to call us into a realm of spiritual light. Now, the reason why we love our darkness goes back to Genesis 3. Remember now, follow John, Johannine theology. John 1 is a new creation in a sense. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then now he comes, you know, the new creation, John 1. We preached that, we explained it. There needs to be now in John, John chapter 3 a new birth, a new creation. You see these, this creation theme, Genesis 1. Now when you talk about darkness and sin, you're talking about Genesis 3 and the parallel. That our sin goes back to Adam. That in the Garden of Eden, the fall is the very reason why we need to be born again. We need to be made a new creation because of the fall of man. And so people love darkness and hate light because light exposes their sinful desire. Recently, I was reading a book by John Mark Comer, and uh, he, his recent book, Live No Lies, he provides this paradigm for why our souls fall into ruin, and it goes to some, a little something like this. This is how Satan has operated. He operated with this pattern in Genesis 3, and he continues to operate with this pattern there's basically the devil, the flesh, and the world. And the devil, he uses deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. That's our flesh. And these are normalized in a sinful society. So let me unpack this for you. And if you can understand this paradigm, you will understand the daily battle that we face and why life is a battle of ideas, a battle of worldviews, so basically what happened in Genesis 3 is the devil sold Eve a lie. The devil is described as the father of lies. He is a great liar. And he says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from the tree? I mean, isn't that like the devil? Like God actually said you can eat from every single tree. You have abundance here. There's just one that's off limits. I mean, you would think that we'd be pretty satisfied. You can have anything in the world that's here. You just can't have that one. But why is it that our hearts want the one that is forbidden? And so that's the devil going after her. her and God must, and he's, he's saying in a sense, God must be holding something back from you. Eve, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he's holding back something from you. He's afraid that if you eat that, you'll be like him and you'll know everything. So he doesn't want you to know everything, and he's holding it back. Don't you want to be like God? You don't need God. You want to be autonomous. You want to be independent. You want complete freedom. Don't you? You don't need God. You can actually be like God. You can be independent. You can fulfill your heart's desire. Go, girl. You be you. Be you. And so the devil works through lies and false ideas. 
Now, how does he work? He directs those lives. The truth of the gospel is directed at the heart. The devil, he aims for the flesh. Now, here's the difference. Eve, at this point, is not fallen yet. She has a fighting chance. But here's the difference. She's isolated. It's not because she's a woman that she fell. Let's be very clear. Okay, Adam did no better. It's that she's isolated. What did I say that we love our privacy? We love when no one's looking. In the same way, Eve is completely isolated. She's isolated from community. She's isolated from Adam. She's not engaged with God. And so the devil says, you're alone. I'm coming after you. And you're not fallen yet, but I'm going to go after your ability to choose, your ability to sin. And so this is before the fall. For you and me, we're born after the fall. We're already born fallen into sin. We don't have a fighting chance against the flesh. She does, yet she fails. And so he goes after the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh, Greek word sarks, it's, it's basically your inner flesh. It's the seed of human desire. And so it's not fallen yet in Genesis 3. But for us, the seed of human desire is falling. That's your gut. The same thing where you're tempted to have that extra snack or to eat too much, or to, to buy something to make yourself feel happy. Oh, maybe you need more shoes. Maybe you need another thing. You know, maybe you need to go shopping. That'll make you feel better. Maybe you need sexual uh, temptation. That's the same lust. It's the heart of lust. And when you see something with your eyes, there's a sensory connection to your desire. That's what the devil's going after, with lies. So he goes idea after idea after idea. That's the world we live in. Lie after lie after lie. And he, he's good. He goes after your gut. He goes right at the flesh. And that's why it's the, the language, doesn't the fruit look good? Don't you want to consume it, Eve? It will taste good. Don't you want what's forbidden? He's going after her. The, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the heart, and she can't take it. She's all alone. And she takes it. She gives it to Adam. He does no better. And he falls. And what happens is that you see this pattern repeated to form the world system over thousands of years. Lie after lie after lie. And we call that society and culture. That's the fallen world that we live in. We're born into that world. We're assimilated into that world. And so when lies feeding on the flesh become normalized patterns, how hard is it for you to see that you're even in darkness? That's why you got to be born again, because darkness to us is normal. We're born into it. Wrong becomes right. You can't even see it. If you disagree with God's order, with God's order um, and you support disorder, then you're wrong. So, so let me just give you this idea. Okay, these sinful habits and patterns over time. Thousands of years, these patterns become normal. So let's just take about the secular West and their view of sexuality and sexual freedom. I don't have to say too much for you to understand already where the world is going, right, in terms of sexuality, but this is nothing new. It's been from the beginning. Um, and if you disagree with the world's view of sexuality or gender, in other words, if you disagree with the world's disorder, you're actually out of order. You're unjust. But wait, you're trying to go back to God's creator order, but you're the evil one. You see what I'm saying? Wrong has become right. 
and right in God's eyes has become wrong, and God's created order is wrong, and disorder is right, and that's because the lies that fed on the flesh practiced into patterns over thousands of years have been normalized in society where what is darkness to most people is light. I mean, what is darkness to God is light to most people. And so we are so blind, and that's the depravity that we're born into. And that's why now do you understand what John is saying? Let's go back to Jesus' words. Will you look with me once again now with understanding? At starting in John 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved they couldn't help it. They were born loving the patterns that had been normalized. They loved the darkness, their own desires. Of course, they're going to love it because it's the flesh. It's the seed of human desire. Of course, you're going to love it. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed because it's like that, that light is offensive. It exposes normalized patterns in this world. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. And when you do that, you do get persecuted. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God because God's the only one that can rescue us from these patterns of the dark world that we live in. Does that make sense? Does that help for application? That's, that's what you're dealing with every single day. And so in verse 21, those who trust in Christ come into light, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And those are the good works. The only way that we truly do good works with a good intention and motive is the result of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, causing us to be born again, and we begin to live as new creatures. Note the phrase, works have been carried out in God, meaning God does that work of causing us to be born again, but yet we still have good works. Let me give you the big idea and add on a few more application points, okay, or just ideas of application. The big ideas of today, I couldn't put it into one sentence. Born of Adam, we were born of Adam, which means we so loved ourself. God so loved the world, we so loved ourself that we lusted after the fallen world while blindly perishing unto eternal judgment. When we say we love the world, we love the fallen world system. Even when we love other people, there might be something that we want in return for ourselves. So we so loved ourself, not ourselves, but the self the inner self that we lusted after the fallen world while blindly in darkness perishing into eternal judgment. But if you're born again, you're not born of Adam the second time, you're born of Christ, born again, God gave us new hearts so that by trusting in Christ, we receive the quality of life with him forever. Let me say that one more time. God gave us new hearts so by trusting in Christ, we receive the quality of life with him forever. Now, let me continue to unpack for application. How do you battle these lies that we live among each day that we have to deal with? In the same book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer, he mentioned somewhere where 
he says, you can't truly uh, control your feelings or your emotions. And what he means by that is not that you can't put your emotions under control. But sometimes you just can't control what you feel. You just have to be honest about it. I feel this way and it's wrong. <laughs> right? You can't really control what you feel because you're going to feel. So feeling is a reaction. But then he says, but you can control what you think about that impacts your feelings. That, that makes sense because you can choose, I'm going to dwell on this. I'm going to stop thinking about this. I'm going to change what I'm thinking about. Consider what you're allowing to come into your mind. Information, stuff you read, stuff you see, stuff you scroll over, stuff, information, news that's told to you. That's all coming into your mind and it's coming from the world system and it's shaping you. And your feelings and your emotions are going to be directed by what you think. So you can't control sometimes what your reaction is. You're feeling your emotions, but you can control. So, so your anxiety, your lack of peace, even external circumstance, you can't really control all of it, but you can control how long you think about things, what you set your mind on, whether you set your mind on things above, whether you have silence and solitude, turn off the computer, turn off the phone, close everything, and just pray silent prayer. And then after praying, listen to God, read scripture, and say, God, I'm listening to you speak. And then these thoughts come up, and the lies are revealed. Let me give you some examples. You get in an argument with your spouse, and the lie comes in. Man, I married the wrong person. Momentarily. Imagine if that lie, if you allow that lie to take shape for 20 years. Right? And then right away, the word of God says, what? What God has brought together, let no man separate. And you're, you're reminded God is sovereign over marriage. Uh, you tell yourself, man, I'm a horrible, I, I can't do anything, I'm helpless, I'm so anxious, I'm so stressed, I can't handle this, I, I think I feel like I'm going to die. Keep telling yourself that, and that's going to shape you. But if you can back up, turn everything off, and start recognizing, hey, that's a lie. What does the truth say? You can apply that to anything in life, Right? anything you 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 spend your mind thinking of these false ideas like i mentioned you had a horrible day but your phone has just sent you like amazon has sent you you need these items and so the lie tells you if you buy those items you need more or you buy those items you might feel a little better or you just need to read more books to feel better or whatever it is and you know the answer is you need to spend time with god you need to pray and recalibrate your, your heart. But the world's going to keep coming at you and coming at you. And you've got to recognize all of these ideas. And, and then, of course, it goes out to false religion and false political views and false worldviews and all that. But the more and more we allow those lies and those thoughts, and we fail to take every thought captive and subject it to the Holy Spirit, those lies, that's what Satan does. He does it to Christians. Pastor Albert knows that I respect him, I trust him, I follow him. Of course I have the lie as English lead pastor all the time. It comes in my mind. You know, Hanley, you just have to lead. <laughs> I can listen to that lie. And, I, and, and, I, and then the thought can say, yeah, I should be the lead. I, I know where we're going. And I have to be reminded, no, no, God is sovereign Remember, you can't even handle it right now. These certain things, you need to just... And so the truth, so what is the truth? Shep shepherd the flock and trust your senior pastor. 
and trust Christ. Shepherd the flock of God. Do what God has called you to do right now by feeding the flock the word of God. So every day, even for myself, God can, see what Satan does is he takes good things. If he, if he tells you a lie that's outright a lie, you're going to sniff it out. That's horrible. But if he, if he tells you, Hanley, I've given you vision. You should lead the church now. Look at your friends. They're senior pastors. You're 40. It's time. You need to. You're not going to have that much time. If you wait till you're 50, you're not going to have energy. You see those lies? It's a good lie. It's a pretty good lie, Satan. And imagine if I came to work bitter. Now, I say this because Pastor Albert and I have a great relationship, and we talk all the time, and he develops me and trains me in my leadership, and we have this trust. But imagine if I just listened to that. Think about it. That's what Satan does. He tells you a lie. He feeds on your flesh. Don't you want to be in charge? You're a leader. You have gifts. He feeds on the flesh. And over time, when that's normalized into patterns, that's the world we live in. And our answer is first to turn to Christ and the gospel, to be, see the gospel as good news, to be born again unto Christ, and to allow the word of God to take shape in our lives. The more we allow the word of God to dictate what is in our mind, the more it will govern the emotions of our hearts. We'll say more about this next week as we launch into our Advent focus from the Gospel of John. The theme of our Advent series will be uh, entitled Savior of the World, and we're also going to have a prayer practice, an exercise for you guys for the next uh, four weeks to follow. Okay, so if you'll join me in a word of prayer now. Father, we come before you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming down and showing us, Lord, how we are assimilated into a world of darkness. Even as born-again believers, we struggle because Satan is that good with his lies feeding on the flesh. Help us, Lord, that having been born again, that we would experience the Word of God taking shape in our lives and dictating to us how we are to live and think and feel. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be a, a church that loves your Word, that digs into your Bible and begins to live out your Word. Lord, as we gather with our families, our friends this, this week for Thanksgiving, I want to pray, Lord, that we would experience gratitude and gratefulness that we would thank you for all things. Father, I want to especially remember those who might feel lonely, those who might have lost their family. I want to especially pray for those this Thanksgiving season for, where for the very first time, grandma, grandpa, auntie, aunt, or mommy, or a child or someone won't be there because they were lost. Bring comfort bring peace, bring joy. I pray above all things, Lord, that we would come this Thanksgiving and behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel and behold Jesus Christ crucified as the true and better Adam in our place for our good and resurrected on the third day. Help us, Lord, to center our Thanksgiving around your son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.